I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Christine Wells writes historical fiction featuring strong, fascinating women. From early childhood, she drank in her father's tales about the true stories behind popular nursery rhymes, and she's been a keen student of history ever since. After graduating from university with a law degree, Christine worked in a large city firm specializing in corporate mergers and acquisitions, and she might still be a lawyer if she hadn't accepted a challenge from her friend to try her hand at a novel. The minute she began to weave that story, she fell in love with writing fiction. Christine has gone on to publish 16 novels set in periods ranging from Georgian England to post-World War II France. Christine loves dogs, running, holidays at the beach, and window shopping for antiques. She lives with her family in Brisbane, Australia, and her latest novel is The Royal Windsor Secret. Welcome, Christine. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. I understand you began writing after a friend challenged you to write a novel. Tell us about that. I think I sort of always wanted to write a novel, but I was busy being a lawyer and didn't have a lot of time. And one day we were talking about an author that we loved had passed away so there were no more books. And I said, oh, you know, I'd love to write a book like that. So then that started the whole thing. My friend said, well, why don't you? What's stopping you? And, <laughs> you know, looking back, I was in my 20s. And even though I had a professional career, I didn't have children. <laughs> so I really did have the time. It just became a complete obsession. I loved it so much. 16 novels later, are you still friends? Yes, yes, we are. In fact, she's moved away to Toowoomba, unfortunately, which is about an hour away from where I live. Yeah, we're we're very good friends still, and she still reads my books. She's one of my first readers. So. Oh, that's awesome. At least you got a good start on it in your 20s. Yeah, I think it's it's easier to keep going. I just got a contract when I had my first baby. So I think it's easier to keep going if you feel like you have to. Whereas I think I would have taken a break if I hadn't had that because it's so intense having young children and a lot of women do it. A lot of women manage it, but uh, yeah, it's tough. There's no doubt about it. Looking back, I imagine there would have been things I could have done to make room, but it is, it's so overwhelming. And when my kids were really small, I found out I had MS. And so then it was like, well... (sighs) I just need to focus on taking care of my kids and yeah. be with my family. Now it's all good. Just got a late start to the game. That's all. Your novels are set during notable historical periods. When you're getting ready to start a new novel, how do you decide where you're going to go next? That's a really tough question. I think usually <laughs> something has really captured my attention while I've been researching other books. That was certainly the case for The Royal Windsor Secret. I'd become fascinated by all these different aspects of World War II and the royal family and particularly Edward VIII and his strange interlude in Europe when war broke out. And so I think that germinates away and uh, I come up with several proposals usually. I have a literary agent 
and she <laughs> she's very tough you know she wants to go out there with the absolute best thing that she thinks is going to have a wide audience appeal so my first book with her was about Catherine Dior the sister of the fashion designer who was a resistance worker in World War II and you know obviously that's a really big hook and that was Sisters of the Resistance so you know that's the kind of book she wants so it's a combination of I, I get fired up by ideas and I might have five or six ideas that I could write. I might be a little bit more passionate about some than others, but I could really get passionate about them if I, you know, once I'm writing them. And so then we work out which she thinks is the best. And then we do the synopsis and go and propose it to my editor. So that's really, you know, nuts and bolts of how it works. I don't think I've had to let any story go that I really, really loved. And well, there is one that I've got on the back burner that I think I might just write a short story or a novella or something like that because I want to get it done. Usually once I'm committed to an idea, then I'm just all in. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, giving us that glimpse into what goes on between you and your literary agent. Writers here don't write to the market, but yet love doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> and you've got to, unless you write romance, and then yeah. I guess it does. But you have to write something that's marketable. I was listening to the shit no one tells you about writing. And they were talking about, I can't remember what historical period it's covered for debut authors. Like if an established author writes, they have their following. But for a debut author, they might struggle to get into the market. It's interesting that you give us that glimpse. Realistically, you don't want to put all that work into it and then have it sit there. Well, I did write The Book of My Heart. That was my first historical novel. And it was set in 18th century England on the Isle of Wight and partly set in present day. And it wasn't a commercial era. I loved writing it. I loved researching it. I'd spent about a year on that book, more probably. But yeah, it's really difficult to sell a period that is so-called not popular. So I think to give yourself the best chance possible, you know, obviously if medieval England or whatever era is your thing and that is all you're interested in, I think that there can be breakout books that you'll see, but there isn't so much an established, you know, subgenre in that era the way there is for World War II and books like that so yeah it's it's a choice you make there is that tension between what you really love to write and <laughs> let's face it it doesn't pay well enough to do it if you don't love what you do <laughs> I think I've always had an eye on the market and I can get passionate about whatever I'm writing about because I find it fascinating so hopefully the reader will too. I was speaking recently to Leah Redmond Chang and she wrote Young Queens, historical nonfiction. And it was about Mary, Queen of Scots, historical nonfiction. So many of the stories of women have been told through a man's version, the way they interpret it. With that in mind, what is it that you feel is your goal in telling that story of the women behind those largely male stories? We don't get the women's side of it as much. Yeah, I think... That absolutely is true. And the reason that historical fiction is so 
good for telling women's stories is that there's so little on the historical record, even with Catherine Dior, because she'd been to concentration camps, it was shameful for women to talk about that because it was assumed they'd been raped and so they would come back not lauded as heroes as such, although she did get honoured with medals. It's something she never spoke about. So there was very little to be able to hang a story about her on. And there was a nonfiction book about it. And the reviews said we didn't really get much of a picture of Catherine Dior. And that's because there was nothing on record. And so historical fiction is wonderful because it fills in the gaps. And with the Royal Windsor Secret, which is coming out soon, it's more a case of not so much a woman experiencing a particular historical event. Cleo, the main character, is not a real person. But I found it really important to think of themes of empowerment with her. You know, she wants to become a jewellery designer. That is her ambition in life. She wants to support herself. People say to her, oh, but you're so beautiful, you can get men to give you jewels. And she says, no, I'm going to earn them myself. I'm going to design them myself. That carries her through the entire book. She has this rumour about herself that it's all whispered that she's the illegitimate daughter of Edward VIII, the King of England, who later abdicated the throne to marry Wallace Simpson very famously. That side of her, she longs to know who her parents are, but it's not because she wants to be a princess. It's because she wants to be loved and she feels a sense of abandonment. So she wants to get to know her parents as people. We've got that side and then jewels become a real theme in this book where other women use jewellery in different ways. There's a courtesan who amasses jewellery as a way to build her fortune because in those days it was not right for a man to pay her for her company. He gave her jewels and this was how a courtesan would amass her wealth. And then we've got Wallace Simpson who, you know, is famous for all of the jewels she acquired through her liaison with Edward VIII and later marriage. So I love to show different women from different circumstances trying to survive the best way they can. But I do love, you know, my main heroine will always be somebody who is capable of standing on her own two feet. The Royal Windsor Secret, your latest. When you decide, okay, this is the story I'm going to write, what like your process? How does it work? Oh, it's not easy. <laughs> Usually I have signposts where I know this historical event happened. For example, I wanted Cleo to be presented to the king who was her father, and he was only king for one presentation. He wasn't even king for a whole year. So it had to be 1936 that she was presented to him. So working back from there, and there was the liaison that she was supposedly a product of between this French courtesan and Edward VIII. So that happened during World War One. So, you know, I got those signposts. And then basically, I research as much as I can before I start. And I try to immerse myself 
in the period and in the, the setting, you know, even to the point of watching a lot of movies or whatever I can find, reading books that were around at that time, because I find as a novelist, you get some nitty gritty from novels, not from from textbooks. Textbooks won't tell you what they ate in the morning, but a novel that's written at that time will give you lots of information and some of it, you know, you obviously go and fact check. So I do that background first and then I research as I go because there's always nitty-gritty. And some things I leave till the end, like you don't want to be looking up small things as you're writing because that really stops your flow. So you can look it up, you know, later that day or after you've finished the book. As well, you might cut these scenes and then you've wasted a lot of time researching. So I think that's a little bit more of a process. You refine as you go and you try to be disciplined because, of course, research takes you down all of these different avenues. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, too, usually if I go to the place that I write about, for example, the Isle of Wight, I find it much more useful to have written a draft first. I mean, if you could go there twice, but I live in Australia, so any flight to Europe or the US, you know, that's almost 24 hours in transit for me. So (laughs) I don't tend to go places several times. So if I can only go there once, I will have the draft written and I will know exactly what I need to know, the atmosphere I need, you know, the little details that will just bring it to life more. And so that's my process. Do you ever stumble upon surprises in your research? Oh, absolutely. All the time. Just some serendipitous things. For example, when I wrote the draft of The Wife's Tale, which was set on the Isle of Wight, there was a Spanish restaurant that I just, you know, plucked out of the air and put in the book. Didn't think much more of it because I thought, well, if there isn't one, there is now. And when I went there, (laughs) Ventnor is this tiny little seaside British town and it probably didn't have more than 10 restaurants, but one of them was a Spanish restaurant. And I sat there in the Spanish restaurant and had dinner and told them, I put you in my book. (laughs) I think they're a bit (laughs) amused, but, yeah, that was serendipitous. These things come up. But, uh, yeah, I think with the Royal Windsor Secret, I think I was a little bit surprised at the stories of Wallace Simpson and just the level of materialism that was there. I didn't quite understand how absolutely single-minded she was about all of her possessions and, you know, to the extent where the Nazis have invaded Paris, she and the former king are fleeing to Spain and Portugal And she's very, very concerned about her O'Neill swimsuit that she's left behind on the Riviera. And they get the Americans to send it in a diplomatic bag. Priorities, (laughs) right? Yeah. Europe's being bombed. There's war everywhere. Britain's facing defending her shores alone. And they'd be in France where the Nazis marched on Paris. She's worried about her swimsuit. When you're not writing, you serve as a mentor and you also teach writing workshops. 
What do you find most satisfying about helping other writers? Oh, I love so many things about it. But one thing I love when I'm in a workshop, I do this workshop on the power of premise. And so the whole workshop is about brainstorming and getting ideas for books and then putting them into a premise. And when people go through all the exercises I take them through, they read out their idea and the whole room goes, and that is the best feeling because you can tell somebody, oh, you know, this doesn't quite work or that doesn't quite work or this is great. But when you read that out to a whole room of people and you get that reaction, you know, that's a wonderful feeling for the participant. So, you know, I just I love helping people. I love seeing them succeed. That's why I do it. I mean, there's really no reason to do it because you should be getting your own writing done. But I really love that interaction. I love talking about craft and trying to share a bit. I mean, I've I've been in the business for about 20 years now and published since 2006. So I feel like I've learned a lot and I would love to share that with other people. That's very generous of you because like you said, we all have our books to write to be able to carve out that time. Also, what a generous gift you're giving to the writer who's just put that premise out there. And I can't think of anything that would fuel a story more than getting that reaction of, wow, oh, that's interesting. Because then you feel like, okay, I really do have magic in a bottle. I really can do something with this. Yeah. And and I get excited because, you know, I want to help them submit it then. And, you know, I'm always (laughs) (laughs) probably more enthusiastic than they are about it sometimes, but it's really not that generous in the sense that I enjoy it so much that it doesn't feel like I'm suffering at all by by doing these things. I really love it. I think it's great when any writer takes the time to do workshops or, you know, teach classes because it's such a gift. You know, writing is its own animal. And if you haven't been on the inside of it, you really don't have any way to know. We have those relationships with other writers. We get those little tidbits of, hey, don't go there. Turn right, not left. Even if you enjoy it, I think it's very kind that you do this. Well, you've got this podcast helping a lot of people too. (laughs) I just ask questions. There are so many aspects writers need to know. What would you say is one of the things that can't be taught? I think what can't be taught is probably just a real feel for the story and how a story goes and what's exciting to people in the story and that sense of when things work and when they don't. And you get that by reading a lot, I think. And just thinking about what works for you. You can teach techniques to bring those things out. But I think that as a writer, you have to have that innate sense of, I think Susan Elizabeth Phillips talks about energy on the page. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, what what's interesting to people and what is the stuff that you should cut out. And that's that's really instinct, I think, more than anything else. Have you recognized anything that's maybe undertaught maybe more writers should know about I think pacing I don't know if it's undertaught but I think it's something that it's a little bit of high level that you don't get so often you get plenty of you know writing character and there's plenty of structure stuff out there even though that is quite tricky for beginner writers but pacing is something that I think is another thing that can be quite instinctive but you can also learn techniques to improve the pacing of your novel 
So that's one thing that I think people should look at more. Having made pacing mistakes myself, I can see how I think it's well paced and then you get another set of eyes on it. And that's when you find out what didn't work. You don't know till you know. And that's really the easiest way of finding out, isn't it? To get a trusted reader to tell you, oh, I put the book down here. (laughs) This is where it lagged for me. Because in this day and age with streaming and gaming and everything we have to compete with, you really don't want to lose that reader in the middle of your book. Yeah, my best friend from elementary school, I she's one of my first readers and handed off a book to her a couple of weeks ago. And she starts reading, she's telling me all these nice things. And I said, no, I need to know what doesn't work. Where are you confused? Where are you going? What is she doing here? And you yeah, don't know yeah. unless you have somebody who's willing to tell you. What's next for you? At the moment, I'm writing a book tentatively titled The Paris Gown. And that is about three young women in Paris in the 1950s who share a Dior gown. So fun. Yeah, it's still got quite a bit of history in it, but it's more of a leaning towards women's fiction sort of premise with these three friends. So yeah, it's been fun to write. Are you reading anything interesting right now? I am reading The Disappearance of Astrid Picard by Natasha Lester. So I've got an early copy of that. I'm very lucky. (laughs) And I'm loving it. So good. (laughs) She's really taken the 1970s vibe and run with it in this one. Although it's actually a triple timeline. With all of the different periods that you've covered Mm -hmm. about your writing, what would you like your legacy to be? I think I'd love to have people just say that they had a great time reading my book and that they learned something, came away a little bit more knowledgeable than they were before. I don't need to change the world. I'm just happy to have somebody enjoy my books and be able to escape from their dreary lives for a while. (laughs) Do you have any advice for new writers? My advice to new writers is to make sure you write. That is the most important thing to do. Of course, you need to learn your craft with workshops and books and all kinds of things, but you want to spend the bulk of your time actually practicing your craft. And so my advice is to write (laughs) because we do a lot of procrastinating and doing things around writing that isn't actually writing. And nobody (laughs) loves to talk to other writers about the industry and what have you than more than I do, but I make sure I get my words done first every day. And that's my advice to new writers. Thank you, Christine. Thanks so much, Chris. It's been lovely. To learn more, visit christine-wells.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.